Morning, church. It's good to see you. Yes, we were on vacation, but it didn't mean we didn't miss you. We did miss you. Um, Have you ever watched someone be provoked to the last straw? Have you ever provoked anybody to the last straw? I have. I think I've done it to my kids at least a couple of times. I want to talk about that provocation today. How far is too far? What happens when somebody gets pushed too far? And when we left before, we left back in John chapter 8, where Jesus taught us that he's the light of the world and that he is as long as he is in the world. And to keep my promise to my beloved prayer meeting group to make sure that this series doesn't go on for four years, which I wouldn't mind if it did, but... Um, I'm skipping over uh, John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 to be able to come here because I just preached on both of those. In John chapter 9, it is the narrative about the man born blind and Jesus healing him. Um, And I preached that on October 17th in our last series. We called that the answer in the dark. And also then John chapter 10, of course, is the beautiful parable of the good shepherd. And uh, preached on November 7th on that one. If you want to find it, take a look. Called the gate open too wide for too long. If there's just one thing or two things that I can uh, bring with us in here so that it would help us uh, with this uh, narrative that we're going to get to in John chapter 11 is what I get from the man born blind and the persecution of him afterwards by the self-righteous. The most horrible thing to me about self-righteousness is when a sinner gets used as a prop. And that's what happened to this man born blind. Master, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? He's been used his entire life as a theological prop. These rabbinic students are debating as to why he was born blind. And of course, they want to come to a conclusion that somebody had to have sinned because a self-righteous person is always looking for worse sin than theirs. And so for his entire life, his entire life, these people, these rabbinic students, these Bible students, if you will, the people that think that they're bringing him the gospel by debating over who caused his blindness, his entire life, he's been used that way. And then that one day, that one day when he hears a voice that sounds like many waters that says, neither neither. In fact, for the first time ever, this country rabbi says he was born this way so that it would bring God glory. It may be the first time ever, ever, that the man ever thought that he brought God glory after being born blind. And then, of course, the parable of the good shepherd after that is a warning. It's a warning to anybody who'll pick on my sheep this way. Anybody, anything short of the good shepherd, anything short of taking care of sinners the way that a shepherd takes care of sheep is unacceptable for a follower of Christ. Those are the two things I want you to take with us into this because we're gonna come across a sheep. Now, the thing was, was that that one sign, uh, healing a man born blind, that had never been seen before. It had never been done before. And, and so they're beginning to have to wrestle with who this guy really is because he's doing things that they haven't, that they've never seen before. And you would think that when he begins to show these signs, because that's all what we're looking for, right? We're just looking for signs. We have people out there that says, you know, I'd believe in God if I could see some of the things that, that you Christians say that he did. The point is, in the Gospel of John, it's not true, is it? The people that have seen it are the very ones that don't believe. Signs are not getting people to believe. It's making a way for them to believe. They can still not believe if they chose to. And that's what happens to these self-righteous teachers. Because you'd think about beginning to see these signs, they begin to say, that's our Messiah. This is who we've waited for. But not them. 
No, they're being told uh, uh, at the end of chapter eight, if, I, if we go back to the light of the world sermon, at the end of chapter eight, Jesus said to them very truly, before Abraham was, I am. Did I put those slides up there? No, I didn't. Before Abraham was, I am. And it says, then they picked up stones. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. At the end of the parable of the good shepherd, he makes one line in, in culminating in this, in, in trying to show Israel that the father has always wanted to gather them in the way that a shepherd gathers in sheep. And he says, the way that I know that is because I and the father are one. And as soon as he said that, the Jews took up stones again. He says the Jewish leadership took up stones again to stone him. So the signs that are supposed to open up our minds, the self-righteous minds to believe who he is, those signs are actually beginning to write his death sentence, are they not? Where does this anger come from? Why do they feel so provoked by these signs? See, it's only Jesus' eloquence, both, in both cases. It's his eloquence in addressing what they're going through that gets him out of there alive. He withdraws a few miles from Jerusalem to let this situation cool down. The reason we find him in Bethany today at the begin of chapter 11 is because it is not safe for him to be in Jerusalem anymore. The very church that claims that they're looking for him wants him dead. So it's been building for a while. He cleansed the temple. He healed a paralyzed man, but he healed him on the Sabbath. He disrupted worship by preaching in the middle of the festival. He blasphemes once again by claiming he preceded our father Abraham. He heals on the Sabbath, this time a man born blind, and now he is blasphemed again by claiming that he and God are what? Are one. And you get a sense, Dr. John Pauline in his Bible Amplifier series on John points out to us, he says, you get a sense that all it's going to take is one more act. It's gonna take one more provocative act, act to finish him off. One last straw in this relationship that Jesus has with these leaders, that he has with the Bible believers, with the church, if you will. And so what act will this be? Chapter 11 begins to tell us about that. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is sick. He whom you love is ill. Bethany is what you would call a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just outside, as a matter of fact, it's over two uh, what you would call, not mountain ranges, but, but from Jerusalem, if you look over the hill from the Mount of Olives, then there's another one on the other side of that. Bethany is on the other side of that. It's not real close, but it's pretty close. It's not Galilee, it's not you know, four days journey away, it's a couple over there. It's a poor town now. It's a very, very poor village, but it probably wasn't in Jesus' day. The reason we know this, or at least Lazarus, because Lazarus has, uh, has to have money, because when we meet Lazarus in the tomb, that's his family tomb. Only people who had means had their own tombs. And it has their name on it, their family name. The other thing strange about this, the way that it begins, is that John mentions Mary anointing Jesus' feet. Guess what? It hasn't happened yet. It happens in the next chapter. It happens in chapter 12. And we're reminded how beautiful the truth is about this gospel. This gospel is written simply so us in the second generation, those who haven't seen, those who didn't witness what these signs that we're looking at, that we can be assured that whatever order it happened in, we get to be able to believe even though we haven't seen. See, eyewitnesses always think that they have, that they're one up, right? And John has been living his entire ministry, and I'm sure that the conflicts that have been in this brand new baby church has been between these two generations, those who were eyewitnesses versus those who haven't seen. And John comes back about 70 years later to tell the story. He says, look, don't, don't be down, second generation. 
Don't, don't be discouraged. And, and, and also, don't buy into the myth that if you were to see the signs, that you would automatically believe. Because we saw the signs, and we didn't believe. It's very encouraging. It's very encouraging to us, the second generation, because this is exactly you and me. This is who this gospel was written for, written for us. I see nods, didn't hear amen. It's the masks, it's the masks. But the narrative goes on. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to what? He says that to the disciples. This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Isn't that the same thing he said about the man born blind? The man's blindness was, he was born that way so that God could be what? So that God could be glorified, he said. Accordingly, though, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he doesn't rush, does he? In fact, that's what you expect this to say, right? He loved Lazarus, and when he, he acknowledges that he loves him, he should run right out the door, right? Lights and sirens all the way to, Jeru- all the way to Bethany. No, it doesn't happen, does it? doesn't happen. He stays how long? He stays two days longer. Now, the reason he does that will be answered in a sec, but he's already told you. He's already told you the reason that he did it. It may not mean that we understand why he did it, but he already told them, right? It's for whose glory? It's for God's glory that this has happened. So if you ask, Master, Rabbi, why are we hanging around? If, if Lazarus is gonna die, we gotta get there, right? If he's sick, we gotta get there. Jesus said, no. We already know the answer. It's for God's glory. But like I said, it doesn't mean that we're going to understand it. So he waits these two days, and after the two days, he says to the disciples, what? Let us go again, where? Let's go again to Judea. Let's head down to Judea. Like I said, we're not 100% sure where he is, but he's at least two days away because he waited two days. And then, of course, we know that when he gets to the tomb, Martha will tell him that Lazarus has been dead how many days? Four days. So that two days plus two days, wherever he is, he was two days away, if you will. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just trying to what? They were just trying to stone you. I don't think this is a good idea. And of course the disciples would think that. Why? If they kill Jesus, what are they gonna do to the disciples? They're free game too. You guys were followers of the heretic. You're next. So they don't think it's a good idea. I don't think I would think it was a good idea either. But there's a sense that if he goes, it will be for the last time. And verse 16 will tell us that. Thomas says, finally, he just says, let's don't argue with him. Let's go and let's die with him. I'm ready. Let's just go and let's die with him, he says. So then Jesus reminds us of something, reminds them of something, something that they learned back in chapter eight, and that was, he says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. This world is fallen and it is cold and it is lonely and it is dangerous. But we don't walk in the darkness of this world. We walk in the light of this world. And Jesus said, you can be assured. You can be absolutely assured. You can't go wrong walking in the light. By the way, it may cost us. In fact, he's already told the disciples it will cost them. They're gonna kill me, and they will kill you. Why? Because you follow me. He's already told them it would cost them. But he says you can't go wrong as long as you're walking in my light. Whatever happens if you're walking in my light was supposed to happen. And it will always bring who glory? It will bring God glory. It will bring God glory, walking in Jesus' light. 
So afterwards, this he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will be what? He'll be okay. He's just taking a nap. The disciples are thinking that he's talking about a nap, right? Of course, he's sick, he's resting. He'll be all right. Jesus, however, is speaking about what? He's speaking about his death, but they, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is what? Lazarus is dead. Dr. Pauline points out that there's a clear Hebrew analogy between sleep and death. The noun in verse 13 is, uh, is, is the one uh, Greek word called upno or upnau, where we get the word hypnosis. Hypnau, hypnotic, hypnosis. Hypnotism is literally putting people to what? Putting people to sleep. By the way, remember the, all the rumors about the seminary that they were gonna teach us hypnosis so that we'd be able to get up here and hypnotize you? I must have missed that class, I'm just letting you know, because I have no idea how to do it. But it literally means to put people to sleep. He already said that this illness wasn't unto death, right? Now he has to say that Lazarus is what? That he's dead. Does that make Jesus a false prophet? No. Not if you liken death, the first death, to a nap, which it is, as long as you're walking in the light of the world. Got to hear an amen about that, amen? Right? All the first death is is what? It's a nap. It's a nap. We do not bury our dead. We tuck them in. Amen? We tuck them in. I'm going to go and tuck Lazarus in, Jesus says. He's dead. And he also says, he also adds, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't what? I'm glad I wasn't there. But let's go to him. Thomas, who called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die. He's glad, Jesus said, that he wasn't there. Why is he doing it? Why did he wait? So they could see this last sign. So they could see what the light of the world has come to do. See, the darkness of the grave is the one thing that human beings are scared of the most. Take a pole, every uh, roper and, and uh, uh, gallop, they take this, the same pole every couple of years. What's your two greatest fears? Death and public speaking. It's been that way for 100 years. Death and public speaking. It's the one darkness that can't be pierced. And what's Jesus doing? He's taught that he's the light of the world. He brought light to a man born blind, and now he's gonna go do it one more time. Why? Because Lazarus went to sleep in the light. Amen? So he's saying that Lazarus is dead, but he's not what? But he's not dead. It's what we believe, right? It's what we believe. By the way, is it easy? not an easy belief. Ask Irv or Jan right now. It's not easy. By the way, it shouldn't be. We're going to talk about that hopefully when we, when we get to the end. When Jesus arrived, they found he'd already been in the what? Been in the tomb for four days. Now, four days, the reason that we believe that Jesus puts this four-day number on this by waiting two days is that it was written, it's written in the Talmud, a Judas, uh, in, in Jewish belief, that the spirit hung around the body for about four days waiting for resurrection. And after four days, it wasn't anymore. What's amazing to me, I, I mean, I, it, it doesn't take much to speculate why. Why, why four days? Because you can imagine the body laying out in the desert heat for four days. After four days, it's going to start to what? That's right. Up until then, there are stories and stories of ancient people who thought people were dead and they weren't, right? What these people noticed was that after four days, they didn't wake up again. So Jesus waits that four days so that they really know that he's what? They really know that he's dead. 
It's why tombs were the way they were, by the way. Now, it's, it's, it's not a very appetizing Sabbath topic before lunch, okay? But tombs back then are not what we consider tombs today. You do know that. They weren't, the tombs back then, okay, and I, I, I hate this word, but there's no other word for it. Tombs back then were putrefaction chambers. Yummy, right? We don't have potluck anymore, but you know. Putrefaction chambers. They were places where the body was sent to decompose. And after they had completely decomposed, you're left with what? Left with the bones, which by the way, don't stink. And by the way, take up a lot less room. So then they would take the bones, they would put them in these ossuaries. They're literally bone caskets about this big. And in a place where land is at a premium, you can't waste land on cemeteries. So you take that box, and you could bury that box if you wanted to on your own property. You could put it on a shelf or whatever. By the way, not too far away from what we practice today, right? But that's what a tomb was. They laid Lazarus in the tomb not to bury him. They laid him in there so that he would decompose. By the way, that's why they embalmed them in spices. Not only does it try to mask the smell to cover it up, it also uh, speeds up the decomposition. They were wrapped like mummies, but not to preserve them the way the Egyptians did, but to get them to decompose faster. That's why tombs were built the way that they were. But after four or five days, after the family has, has gone and sat with them, and after they've decided that this is it, when it begins to stink, then they would take those chambers and they would seal it up and then just let nature do its job. And then they would go back in and they would take the bones out. By the way, if, if a family owned their own tomb, they could rent it out. And they often did. They often did. By the way, when you look around Israel, you see why this is, this is the way. There's not a lot of land in Israel for a cemetery, is there? Sure. No, it's tiny, it's small. Everyone needs the land for what? To try to live off of it. You can't waste it on a cemetery or a golf course, although you see both today. So that's why what's about to happen is what's about to happen. Is this is the way that they were quote unquote buried. This is the reason that, that they were uh, in the tomb. Okay? I'm gonna move on in the narrative to his sisters. I'm gonna move on into that and to what this teaches us. In verse 19, it says, many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them about their brother. This is another reason why we think that Lazarus has money, why the family has money. Because it's important enough for, for Jewish leaders to leave Jerusalem and go all the way to Bethany for just this one guy dying out in this, out in this little, little village. There's a reputation. He has a reputation of why these guys are doing it. They're doing it for two reasons. One is because Lazarus may have been rich, wealthy in and of himself. The other is, is their relationship to Jesus. This is why that they're there. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him while Mary stayed at home. This is interesting, isn't it? The last time that we saw Mary and Martha in Jesus, who was the one that was right at Jesus' feet and who was the one that was in the other room? Not like this now, is it? It's now flipped, hasn't it? It's now changed. She hears that he's coming and it's Martha who comes out to meet him. And where's Mary? She stayed in the house. Only Martha comes out. Maybe he took her words to heart. What he said before, Martha, you, you are worried about many, many things, but here's what matters. Apparently she took his words to heart because once she heard he was there, she comes running out to him. She's gonna prove her faith in a minute too. So she comes to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have what? 
He wouldn't have died. Is that true? She believes at least to the fact that if he were there, he could heal her if she was sick. She's seen it before. She's seen him heal somebody sick. I get it, she said. If you were here, he would not have died. Also, do you hear just a little bit of a rebuke in there? I called you two days ago. What's up? What happened? I thought you loved us. But even now, she says, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. The way she worded that is very, very interesting. The way she worded it. Does she believe that Jesus can make him rise again? No. That's why she worded it the way she did. Even now I know God will give you whatever you ask of him. And kind of in the back of her head, she's saying, could you raise him today? But she doesn't come right out and say it, right? She doesn't come out and say it because she doesn't quite believe it. And how do I know that? It's because Jesus said, your brother will what? Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will, but when? In the resurrection. She doesn't believe he can do it now. Or she doesn't believe he will do it now. Does it matter which? No. That's how unprecedented these signs are from Jesus. No one's ever seen this. When's the last time somebody saw this in Israel? Elisha. Remember after Elisha died and they buried his bones? By the way, same, same practice. They'd only buried his bones. And remember, uh, they, they apparently were gonna bury this guy right on top of Elisha. Or they, they had dug too far down and there was Elisha's bones and there was a band of marauders coming and they threw the body in and when the body hit Elisha's bones, what happened? He came to life again. So when was the last time this happened? She doesn't believe he can do it. Her faith is great, but it only goes how far? It only goes this far. We have a hard time with that even today, don't we? You know, I mean, we can say the prayer, but does anybody here ever really want to say a prayer in front of other people for him to stop a funeral? Why don't we pray for him to stop a funeral? Why don't we pray for it to happen? I'm not calling you out, I'm calling us out. Because somewhere in the back of our head, we either believe that he can't, or more likely we believe that he what? that he won't. And it's a whole lot easier to be able to believe in the resurrection. By the way, we should. We should believe that we'll be raised in the resurrection. But she has hope in the resurrection even though she doubts right here in the moment that anything can be done for her brother's current condition. But even with her doubt, Jesus hands her this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the what? And the life. He didn't rebuke her. He, didn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't rebuke her or, or say, you have little faith. You don't think that I, can, you, that I can do this? He doesn't do any of that. He hands her the keys to the kingdom even though at the moment she's doubting. Man, that's a beautiful, powerful thing. That is powerful that he doesn't rebuke her for her lack of faith, if you will. I am the resurrection and the life. But that's what he's trying to tell her. I understand that you're doubting about it, but I'm the one that's the resurrection. So anywhere I am, resurrection is possible. He's trying to get her to make the connection. And apparently, resurrection isn't based on whether or not it's at the end of time or not. It can happen right now for his friend and her brother. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will what? will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. That's a powerful, powerful confession of faith, but it still isn't. I believe you're going to go in and raise my brother from the dead. She still doesn't. And I don't know if you've noticed, but 
But Jesus says, you know what? It's okay, dear. It's okay. Wow. Because that wouldn't be me. I'd make a statement right now. You don't get it. You don't get it. Oh, you of little faith. I'd be patting myself on the back right now. But he cares about her. He loves her beyond what I think I'm capable of or what anybody could be capable of, especially somebody who is self-righteous. Somebody self-righteous would jump on this because they would find an opportunity to feel better about themselves. I believe you can do it. She doesn't. I'm better than her. But by the way, that confession right there, even Peter didn't go this far. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Martha says that you came directly from God and you're still in the world. Martha goes even further than Peter did with his confession. It's amazing she makes this statement. Absolutely amazing. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's as far as he's gotten in the Gospel of John. And and then it says, we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. She comes flat out and says, you're the Messiah. He sent you and you're here. By the way, that expression of faith is what John is trying to get out of each and every one of us as we listen to his word. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. But it's a beautiful thing. Listen to the way that he puts it. So that you may come to believe. It's a process. You witness the signs. We think we see the signs and they're so powerful. It should just happen. It should happen overnight. By the way, that's what I heard you talking about in Sabbath school, right? Talking about the Israelites who saw the signs, who saw the Red Sea part, who got taken care of in the wilderness. And yet, 40 days after Moses goes up the mountain, they are making their own gods. Faith is a process. And wherever you are is where Jesus will have you. He doesn't rebuke her for not believing even though he's given her ample evidence. Which, by the way, we do. We don't rebuke. We're nice people. But at the end of the Bible study, when we've given them tons and tons of evidence of a particular doctrine, at the end we go, does this make sense to you, right? In other words, I've given you so much evidence that you'd be stupid if you don't believe now. We may not put it that way, but isn't that what we're saying? And we forget about the process that we are on, the journey that we're on. That we didn't just magically all of a sudden overnight believe exactly the way that we do today. We get to live and we get to grow. And he promises that he will be with us no matter what stage we're at. He will meet you where you are. And then he'll be in charge of the journey in the light. I love the way he treats Martha here. Is he going to treat Mary the same way? Because Mary's worse off than Martha is. There's a reason she didn't come out to see him. Okay? There's a reason. When she said this, she went back and called her sister. In other words, she's been out there with him all this time, and Mary still hasn't shown up. Where is she? She's back in the house, and who is she with? She's with the religious leaders that have come to help her mourn for four days, if you will. The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. She has to go out there. John is very specific. Jesus is, where, is still where Martha met him. He doesn't go in to get her. He's still outside. Mary is at the house. She's not alone. Like I said, the Jewish leadership is there. John makes sure that we know that before we hear what's about to take place, before we hear this conversation. When she hears this, she gets up and goes quickly to him. She went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still outside. So where Martha had met him. 
So the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up and quickly go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus is, she knelt at his what? She kneels at his feet. She takes on that posture that we know her for. Now, I'm just speculating here, but imagine that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, before this happened, already believed what Martha so eloquently stated in, in verse 27. Let's, let's just, for that, let's say that all three of them believe that. For a while now, they're teaching people about Jesus. They see the signs. They saw the signs. The one sign that they experienced personally was what Jesus had done for Mary in chapter 8. She's the only one that it happened personally to, didn't she? And what did Jesus do for her? He saved her life. Saved her life, forgave her for her life of prostitution, gave her a brand new lease, and sent her away and sent her home, brand new. And this is the connection I think that the religious leaders have to this family. They can't be happy that this family is spreading this news. It's spreading all about in this country rabbi. So when Lazarus dies, they jumped on the opportunity. They show up to console these poor sisters, but adding that the teacher must not really be the Messiah. What you guys have been teaching about him is not true. He didn't show up because he knows he can't do anything about it. And for four days, They've been indoctrinating Mary on this. And I'm sorry to say, her actions prove to me that she believes it, doesn't she? She doesn't want to see him. They've been working on her for four days to try to rebuke them for the lies that they've been telling about this guy. He didn't come because he knows he can't do anything. And when he can't do anything about it, that will expose him and we'll have him. That's what they're doing at that house. They couldn't kill Mary and stone her when they wanted to. Now they're going to torture her. It's horrible. It's horrible what they've done to her. And of course, she says... She said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have what? Same thing. But that's all she says to him. That's the rebuke. It's the same rebuke Martha did, but to me, it's deeper. To me, it hurts more. If you had been here, just like they said, just like they said, you didn't come for a reason. If you had been here, my, Mar my, my brother wouldn't have died. That's exactly what Martha, Martha said. The thing is, is that he doesn't give any further revelation to her as he did Martha. He doesn't even try. And here's my theory why. There's no rebuke for her lack of faith because she's hurting so bad now and he knows it. And what matters more to him is to get her through this rather than try and indoctrinate her again about who he really is or to remind her what he's done for her. The amazing thing about Jesus is how he treats people who may be struggling with believing in him at that moment. He's not gonna tread on her right now. He's not gonna take advantage of this situation right now. That's what the religious leaders have done. They've taken advantage of this situation. They've taken advantage of her grief. Jesus won't do it. He's not gonna try and convince her. He's not gonna remind her what he did for her in chapter eight. He's just gonna come and do what he came to do. That's a beautiful thing, and that's a, that's a hard lesson for us to learn on how to treat people and where they are. By the way, if you have somebody in your life that is honest enough to tell you that right now they're doubting, they're honest enough to tell you whether or that they are doubting whether or not they even believe, that's a tremendous privilege you have. And the last thing you should do is, is, is to tread on that. The last thing you should do is try to convince somebody now that they need to believe. And if you need an example, you see it right here. Jesus just says, I'll take you where you are. I took your sister where you are. I'm going to take you where you are. 
You don't believe right now? That's okay. And by the way, he doesn't say, I'm just gonna take my ball and go home. Since you don't believe, I'm not gonna raise your brother from the dead. By the way, some people believe that. There are some walks in, in faith that believe that you can lay hands on somebody and raise them from the dead, but they forbid anybody in there that has any doubt. It's not the God I know. To me, if God wants to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead whether or not Mary believes or not. You with me? And that's exactly what he does. He doesn't try to make her believe. He doesn't try to force her into belief. He just puts her hand on his shoulder or maybe takes her by the hand and says, show me where the tomb is. That's what he does next. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly what? He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Where have you laid him, they said to him. Lord, come and see. And Jesus then what? He begins to weep. He begins to weep. But some of them said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So now they're even doubting that he did what he did before. This is proof that he didn't even open the man's uh, blind eyes. It was something else was happening. It was fake. It had happened. It's been going around and around. He raised Jairus' daughter in secret. She wasn't really dead either. They're using this opportunity right now when he's weeping at the tomb to try to prove that he isn't who he says he is. And they say it out loud. Again, Jesus was deeply what? Disturbed. And he came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. This is how he reacts. This is what he does. He just moves on to do what he's going to do. Mary's grief, the Jewish leaders taking advantage of the situation, all of that still doesn't move Jesus to fight back. Even though he has the power to do what he's about to do, what's amazing to me is there's no selfishness to this. No debate, no fighting back. He's not going to take advantage of anybody's grief. He's not going to take advantage of anybody's loneliness or their darkness at any particular moment to try to make people believe. He just still wants to allow them to. Jesus has come to invite them to behold the resurrection and the life and invite them to behold death. Come and see, he says. Come and see, they say. It's a, it's a tone of sarcasm. It's a tone of taunting. Come see. We'll show you where he lays. We'll show you that you couldn't do anything about it. You fraud. I wouldn't have been able to take it. And I've been in situations where you listen to people that are going through this exact thing, this, this type of grief, and it's difficult to listen to. And believe me, as a pastor, the temptation is, oh no, don't blame God, don't get angry with God. Everything's gonna be okay. It's because I'm uncomfortable. It's because I'm looking bad here. Jesus no forcing, just these beautiful loving hands on her shoulders. Take away the stone. Martha reminds him, it's been four days. Again, she doesn't believe that he can do it. It's been four days. Jesus said, didn't I tell you already that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? Martha's being taken beyond her doubt in, in control of the last power that they won't concede to him. So they took away the stone. Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. 
Notice he prays, standing up and with his eyes what? Just remember that the Bible doesn't prescribe a particular way to pray. Standing up, kneeling, laying down, eyes closed, head bowed, head up, eyes open. Amen? God says, I just want you to pray. I thank you, Father, for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe, again, that they may believe. What the act is going to do isn't going to force them with grandeur and majesty to make them believe that he is God. It opens up the doors that they may. It opens up the doors that there might be a possibility that they may believe you sent me. I hear people say this all the time. If I'm standing there and I, and, I, and I see him raise somebody from the dead, how can I doubt? How can you not believe? There were hundreds of people there who saw it and didn't believe. And by the way, no more or less righteous than you or me. So that they may believe, he said. And with that, he cries out with a loud voice, what, Lazarus? come out. So real quick, just a note, he doesn't touch him. Again, the power of Jesus in the gospel of John is the power of his what? Of the word. Not the word on the page, not the word written down, but the word written on his heart, the living embodiment, the word become flesh that is walking and talking among them. He doesn't need to touch him to do so. It's the word that heals him so that you and I in the second generation know that if we've heard it, we've seen it. As a matter of fact, we're not only as good, our experience as good as those who have saw it, it might be even be better than it was for them. Because they saw and they touched and they heard, but they didn't what? They didn't believe. Martha didn't believe. She's come so far, but she, she doesn't quite believe that. Jesus encourages what she has. He nurtures it further. He brings her up, uh, along. Mary's at a point in her grief where she may not believe anything anymore at him in all anymore. And he gives her the same nurture. He's bringing her along. He rubs nobody's nose in it. Guarantee you, I raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm gonna look at a few of those Jewish leaders and I'm gonna rub their nose in it. But he doesn't do it. In fact, he doesn't even touch them. Makes no show of it. So today, wherever we are today, in various areas of grief, two families right now are absolutely in the throes of grief. I just want them to hear the word and to have encouragement. But the one thing is, is that the, the resurrection does not take away the sting of grief. And it should never interfere with the process of grief. I truly believe that Jesus wept at the tomb because Lazarus was dead and he loved him and he was grieving. Did he know what was about to happen in the next 45 seconds as he prayed that prayer? I believe he did, but he made a statement that day. He made a statement for all of us who grieve. Grieve. But we sometimes look at Paul's words and just say, we just don't grieve as those who have no hope. We use the blessed hope to get in way of the grieving process. And, and sometimes we send the message to people who are grieving. Well, don't worry, he'll rise again. And we don't let people grieve. We don't let people miss them. I guarantee you, Erd knows that Joanne is gonna rise again, but right now he's hurting. And sometimes, just sometimes, us bringing up the blessed hope is a way for us to be able to think that we've ministered to somebody and to walk away from them because we're uncomfortable with their grief. And I may not be speaking for everybody, I just know how selfish I can be. So this needs to encourage us all, especially today, especially when we are tempted to believe that God is absent and he's powerless. 
I think that Martha and Mary and even the church of the day, even the religious leaders of the day, show us where he is. We we may not believe, all of us, we may not believe as we should, but we're met, we're met by Jesus. He meets our insufficient and broken faith and gives it completion, no matter who we are. There are two types of saving faith in the gospel, the faith of those who have seen and the faith of those who haven't seen. The only one that applies to us is the one of the faith of of the people that haven't seen, because you and I didn't. But it's just as saving, just as good, and Jesus said it might even be better. He is as good as physically here because of his word. Jesus is the true giver of life. And the life that's imparted through his words, the second generation is at no disadvantage. In fact, we're better off. And so we're just left with what we're reminded of. Sorry, let's go back up to here. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And as Grady read to us today, Peter says to us right now, although you have not seen him, you what? You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious what? Joy. What do you feel like today? We should. We should. And if we don't, we're not forced to. Jesus comes to us where we are. This is who we are. Are you looking for a sign? He'll give it to you. Martha was faithful based on what she had already witnessed. It had taken her that far. Jesus didn't rebuke her for how far it didn't take her. Amen? And all I'm saying is, if somebody's asking for a sign, Show them the only sign that Jesus gave his disciples to give, and that's the love that he gave Mary and Martha that day. That's the sign that people are looking for. We don't have to raise people from the dead for them to believe that the power of Jesus is in us. If we can love somebody, the power of Jesus may be even more in us than somebody's ability to heal or to raise them from the dead. That's the sign of the last days being able to love as we have been loved. Amen? Thanks for hanging in there. I appreciate it. The raising of Lazarus. There's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot there. I just hope that it's timely for all of us today.